From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, I speak with Liz Kennedy from the Center for American Progress on the Trump administration, its governance, or should I say lack thereof. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Back in 2016, candidate Donald Trump vowed to drain the swamp in Washington. As president, the closest he's come to that campaign pledge is the glacial pace to appoint key people in the administration. As of October 2017, according to the Washington Post, 602 key positions requiring U.S. Senate confirmation only 144 of the president's nominees have been confirmed for those key positions, 176 are awaiting confirmation, and eight have been announced but not yet nominated. This does not include Representative Tom Marino, who was forced to withdraw his name from consideration as the White House's drug czar, following a report that he championed a bill that hindered federal agents from going after large pharmaceutical firms that flooded the country with addicted opioids. What does this mean? To find out, we speak once again with Liz Kennedy. Kennedy is Director of Democracy and Government Reform at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. Liz Kennedy, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me. Representative... uh, Tom Marino has uh, recently withdrawn from consideration as White House pick for to be the next drug czar following reports that he championed a bill uh, that hindered fellow agents from going after big pharmaceutical firms that flooded the country with addictive opiates. Now, you, you might want to provide some context for those latest developments, but I guess underneath that, this is not the first time that the administration has had problems where it seems to have failed to do the necessary background check or at least been caught unaware of breaking developments. I'm thinking specifically of uh, former National Security Advisor uh, Mike Flynn. So. That is exactly who I was also thinking of, actually. <laughs> I was like, well, for example, uh, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, that's exactly right. Um, but I think, you know, we've seen uh, so many uh, both missteps and then just absolute mistakes made by this administration regarding um, both the individuals that they have chosen to elevate to occupy these really critical positions, Um, and then the fact that, as well, they they have left... um, left unfilled so many crucial public positions uh, that really, you know, um, that caused the government's 
business to be done and protect the public interest and advance public interest. So, so I think on the one hand, um, it's a problem with uh, some of the mistakes they've made in terms of who they've been um, nominating. I think also you have to look at the, the other recent uh, nomination um, of the head of the AccuWeather company to head the you know the national uh, the NOAA and he's not he would be the first non-scientist uh, to fill these roles. So whether it's a question of really making mistakes with um, vetting people that have these huge errors of uh, having pushed for um, a bill that, you know, would actually undermine the DEA's ability to do its job um, and then um, picking him to be the head of the DEA itself, or whether you're uh, choosing people to, you know, advise you as the, on the highest levels of national security while they are, of course, uh, actually paid foreign agents, um, and that's, you know, not something that is that your administration has managed to either find out or communicate publicly, um, or really whether ju you're just allowing the the public service to wither on the vine as, you know, I think it's something like two-thirds of uh, Senate-confirmed posts are still uh, yet to have someone nominated um, or still have yet to be filled. Uh, they're really mismanaging the federal government. Well, the, the last numbers I looked at, I don't know how accurate they are. I think they were in er late August, early September. We had a, a roughly 500 jobs to be filled, in, and it was those 500, one, 170, I think, were actually filled. Right. Yeah. yeah. That sounds about right. So, so in, in your opinion— um, is this a matter of just simply uh, being sloppy, or is it a function of not even having the appropriate people in place to make these critical appointments? Well, you're right that, of course, if you don't have the right leadership, um, then you're you know, not going to be prioritizing finding uh, the most important you know, the best candidates, um, how anyone who was doing appropriate due diligence wouldn't have noticed um, that this representative that they were lining up to be the head of the uh, DEA had actually, um, you know, been sponsoring this uh, this bill that itself really undermined the agency. Like, that just seems like a gross error that, that really ought to have been caught. But I think that it stems, so procedurally, who knows how that didn't, um, didn't you know, become apparent and therefore uh, uh, interdict this person's nomination. But I think that it really indicate something um, deeper, which is a fundamental disrespect for the jobs for the civil service, for the jobs that these, um, that these posts do, that the people who would be filling these posts do. Um, so we just have, you know, continue to see these attacks on um, public servants, uh, whether it's, you know, efforts um, to uh, punish, you know, a um, Joel Clement, for example, who worked on climate change um, issues, and he was retaliated against for speaking up for communities that were imperiled by climate change. 
um, and then, you know, was forced to resign, essentially. And so I think that there's just been larger attacks on the civil service and more and more uh, disparaging and disrespect for kind of career civil servants. And if you don't see the role that government plays every day in our lives, protecting safe drinking water, fighting fires, God knows, educating children through the public schools and just, you know, running um, so much of, of the uh, infrastructure of our civil society. If you don't respect those jobs and those people, then I think it flows naturally that you're not respecting, uh, you know, not picking the right leadership to lead those agencies either. Now, I, as you were giving your answer, I was thinking back to former President Ronald Reagan, 1980, used to famously say, and it was a great applause line, if I, as I recall, that government is not the answer to our problems. Government is the problem. So I guess in one sense what I hear you saying is this is sort of a manifestation of a, of a decades-long mantra, if you will, at least on the Republican side. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that this kind of absolute, just fundamental mismanagement is um, a natural progression of four decades of anti-government rhetoric from the right. And, you know, you could talk about uh, where the size, you know, where how much GDP went to government in 1980 versus now, um, you know. So of course the the question is not is the government the answer for everything, but the question is just like as a question of business, you know, we want these programs and these agencies to be really well run with terrific people who are going to do a great job um, and, you know, efficiently and upholding the kind of democratic values at the heart of our self-government, which is putting people first, you know, delivering for the American people fairly uh, and equitably. Um, and I think that, 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 that you're absolutely right, that this is really um, this kind of idea that uh, I think Trump was saying something about, um, you know, it's okay I haven't nominated so many people because uh, there are too many people already. In the meantime, there are like so few, let's just take the State Department. It's, you know, we all know that there are just multiple crises erupting throughout the globe in this Trump administration that he's, you know, very much uh, frequently inciting. And then, but we don't have, you know, confirmed ambassadors. We don't have confirmed um, assistant secretaries to be just doing the daily work uh, of the civil service. And I think, it, you know, for people who've kind of grown up swimming in this, in this anti-government rhetoric, to think about how would a business succeed if they didn't have any leadership or consistent direction or, you know, respect, um, you know, the answer is that they wouldn't. And so I think that that's the same things hold true here. Um, but there are, you know, really huge consequences if, um, if God forbid, any kind of uh, essential public services are, you know, fail because, uh, again, because the wrong people with the wrong background, the wrong interests, um, and really tools of the special interests um, are actually empowered 
to be determining the kind of public policy that really affects people's lives. You know, you, you, I was going to ask you this later, but you mentioned it now, so I'm, I'm going to jump right to it. Um, just take, for example, the tensions that are in North Korea right now. There remain a number of key positions uh, in, defense, in the Department of Defense and state that are unfilled, and you would think that would have been job one four right. months ago? I'm just guessing, you know. Exactly. I mean, that's exactly right. I remember, and I'm, I, I, I apologize for your listeners for not having this at the top of my mind, but do we even have a confirmed ambassador to South Korea anymore? For a long time, I feel like we were not even... Uh, we hadn't actually, you know, gone that far, but that's exactly right. We, I have a, you know, a former colleague who, or a colleague who was formerly at the State Department, and there are just, there's an absolute concern that the, um, and there at least they have, you know, the cabinet level uh, chosen, but the fact that Secretary of State Tillerson has not filled out the ranks of the State Department and the fact that President Trump has not prioritized filling out the ranks of the State Department, which again, represent our interests abroad. At a time of unparalleled challenges to American power in recent years, we're fielding a force that is just utterly depleted. How are we supposed to be putting America first when there's no one at the table to do so? So I agree with you. It's, I think it's, it's an absurdity, and unfortunately, I think it also really endangers American interests, endangers our leadership on the world stage, which is not something um, that we can just get back, uh, and really, I think, you know, may have very grave consequences. So that's just one of the ways in which uh, this is really problematic, again, for America's interests and for the lives of Americans. Well, if you would, walk us through... Um not counting this administration, but but of administrations past, you have a new administration coming in office, the transition of power. How were those key appointments made in, in previous history? Um, my understanding is just that they happened much more quickly, uh, so that the rate of the Trump administration uh, appointing um, leaders to fill these roles is much, much slower uh, than it has been in the past. And for a while, I think uh, people were um, actually kind of tracking uh, one, you know, tracking the rate of one president um, versus another. But, um, you know, let's see, I think that, yeah, my understanding is in, in the mid-October, even going uh, back to the Bush administration, um, they had, uh, in terms of where the, um, you know, where they come in and they have to come in and they, you know, pick all new nominees. So it's a challenge to fulfill these um, staffing positions. But Bush had, uh, as of mid-October in his first year, nominated 624 people, and there had been 375 confirmations. Obama, in his first year, had nominated 534 people and confirmed 359, so, you know, in the same ballpark of confirmations. Trump has only nominated 413 people and only confirmed 172, less than half 
of uh, the numbers that at this very same point in their first year, uh, Presidents Obama and Bush had confirmed and nominated, you know, half as many, uh, 50% of the of the nominations that the Bush administration had put through. So it's really also just kind of like an indication of total um, disorganization or prioritizing the wrong things. I mean, maybe it's because all of the cabinet is just so busy, you know, taking their private planes everywhere uh, <laughs> that they haven't had time to do the hard work of setting up their staff. Um, but it is really a disservice to the public services and the core government agencies um, that, you know, defend American interests and provide so many core services, uh, you know, protecting our clean water, um, making sure our food safety rules are followed. Um, and yet that, uh, that does not seem to have been a priority in this administration. And then, as you say, when, in fact, they do move forward uh, to, prior to, to nominate people, um, they are frequently just utterly unfit for the position. Uh, in this instance, you know, with the DEA, um, the, the person that they had picked to be drug czar would have actually been undermining uh, the DEA's most potent weapon against large drug companies. Um, and certainly with the uh, recent example of the national um, NOAA, the, it was, you know, the first person to have been nominated who wasn't a scientist. You know, we've also seen coal industry people come in to be the head of, you know, EPA issues. We've seen, you know, kind of student debt people come in to be at the uh, education department. So when they are filling these positions, occasionally they are filling them with people who are really, you know, not serving the interests of Americans. Um, but so there's a whole host of problems, Brian. Pablo Escobar, drug czar, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that would be, you know, even beyond the pale uh, for this administration. So, um, you, you know, is is this, in your view, um, is this some partisan bickering going on as well? I mean, you, you know, you have, you know, the Senate has its cloture vote, and you can just drop your cloture vote, and that can that that can sort of slow down the process. Is this just partisan bickering, or or does most of this fault, in your view, lie with this administration? Yeah, it's actually not partisan bickering, Brian, because you know the Republicans control the Senate, and these are not positions that um, can be filibustered anymore. So I, it is unclear as to the uh, my understanding of the stalled um, process for some of these. I mean, again, maybe they're just uh, finding not good things when they start going through the confirmation process. Um, but no, this is, you know, this is uh, as opposed to, well, actually, that's not true. But the, uh, this is the President Trump has a Republican-controlled Senate and a Republican-controlled House, and yet, um, you know, these are all self-imposed uh, injuries. You know, you, you've, you've alluded to it in several of your answers, but I just take a moment to sort of walk us through this. It's very easy. I mean, governance, you know, besides you and I having a conversation about it, is a real yawn for a lot of people, and they sort of glance over it when it's talked about on the campaign trail. But... What are just some of the real downsides and real threats to America by not having the right people in place and being slow on these appointments? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I do think that we uh, started to talk about this when when we really drilled down 
um, with the question of the State Department. Uh, so they're just, you know, and perhaps some Americans are less interested in, in all the ways that America needs to protect itself um, and exert by exerting leadership um, on the world stage. Um, but that's really one of the most uh, critical place where the absence of just actual staffing is felt. I mean, again, if you if you think about how people are running a business, which is not to say that government should be run like a business, because uh, in a business the you know the governing um, principle is is profit generation, whereas in government the governing principle should be uh, fair representation by elected officials and. Uh, you know, excellence in public service um, throughout the uh, throughout the government, but this government workers ensure that the air that we breathe is clean. You know, when we see when we see you know horrible accidents on oil rigs, we need government workers to enforce safety standards so that workers are protected, whether they're miners or or work in. Uh, you know, on oil rigs or whether they work in factories. We need safety standards um, put in. We need, uh, similarly, the, the, the toys our children play with are safe. There are people that, um, there are people that, that staff the, you know, the CDC, the, the, the Center for Disease uh, Control. God forbid we have some kind of other public health emergency, like we remember when there was, you know, recently Ebola in the past several years. What, you know, do they even have a Surgeon General um, right now? Like, how would that coordination happen? It's just like with a uh, private business, you could, if everyone remembers, if there's like turnover of key staff and it's really a shakeup, or if there is a, an absence of leadership, it can be very hard to coordinate um, across these efforts. I mean, you know, I I hate to think about other other uh, kind of domestic safety issues that might be compromised if there aren't. Uh, leaders in these posts and the right kind of leaders. Um, so it is it is a, a twofold failure um, that is endangering Americans' you know long term interests and immediate uh, safety and security. Um, if there are not government workers that are you know coordinated by leadership in order to be on the scene to respond to emergencies. Um, and protect us, you know, from harm. But instead, we are we are seeing, uh, you know, the wrong people nominated where we are seeing anyone nominated. Um, and this is really, um, you know, further evidence that the Trump administration um, is, uh, you know, not not up to the job of just running the federal government. Um, and when they are moving people forward, uh, they are stacking the, the, the deck uh, with special interest cronies um, who, you know, are really doing the bidding of the kind of wealthiest few, um, which is really problematic as well. Well, now, Liz, you, you know that the reflexive response to, to your last answer is going to be a, the president promised to drain the swamp, and B, the size of government is much, much too large. How would you respond to that? Well, draining the swamp absolutely does not mean not having 
uh, qualified federal workers. When the president was talking about draining the swamp, he was exactly talking about the kind of conflicts of interest um, and corruption that um, has led too many Americans to really understand that government is working for big corporate special interests, essentially. Um, and we know that American interests are not best served where representatives are aligned with wealthy special interests instead of being able to fairly represent um, all of their constituents. So the point is that this is um, instead uh, – Donald Trump has been absolutely uh, filling the swamp with with the worst kind of lobbyists and special interest lobbyists, and this is what um, I think really gets people upset when they when they think, wait a minute, how is this person protecting my interests if they came out of the you know, if they came out of the coal industry and now they're in charge of, you know, kind of clean air policy, how is that, how are they representing my interests, which might be in making sure that my grandkids, you know, don't aggravate their asthma, for example. So I think that that's, I think it really is a question. It's unfortunate when, um, it's unfortunate when I think, and I think that this is folks of, you know, some anti-government people have been trying to um, to say that oh the swamp is just government, but government for, first of all government is us like we are the luckiest people in the world to be Americans and because we live in still to this day although it is under threat we live in the oldest constitutional democracy in st still standing constitutional democracy in the world our forebears founded the very idea of the kind of constitutional democracy that we are blessed to live in today where we we fought right in the revolution <laughs> to be represented so that we could have government that was responsive to us and accountable to us. But that doesn't mean not staffing uh, important civil service jobs. Ideally, what that does mean is making structural changes to the rules of our democracy so that we have a much better functioning government that is responsive to the desires of the larger group of people. And more people want tax fairness. They don't want money in tax cuts to be going to the wealthiest 1% of the 1%. And yet that's what we're seeing. You know, I think people, when they respond, when they respond um, against government, I think it's because they you know, understand that things have been becoming really less equal um, in our lives. And then that has, you know, in, in our economy, um, in our democracy, and then that has really um, choked off opportunity for way too many people um, in the country, um, you know, at all levels of, you know, working class, middle class. Um, and yet it's really the fact that, um, 
it's kind of our political inequality, the fact that we don't have the kind of anti-corruption political reform solutions like real lobbying bans on lobbyists acting as fundraisers for members of Congress, bans on members of Congress actually uh, raising money from the interest in front of their committees. You know, we need to change the rules for how our elections happen and how our government operates in that way in terms of with, with you know, special interest lobbying power, and that that is what really drain the swamp means, and that's what Trump was talking about on the trail when he was saying, I need to drain the swamp because when I give money, you know, politicians just do whatever they want. Like, we need to, to really close off those anti-democratic avenues um, for special interest power, and we need to empower people through really just common sense voting rights and voter access reforms, like automatic voter registration, like more expansive early voting. Um, so there are really common sense solutions that we could absolutely advocate so that government turns around and is aligned with the interests of the much larger, uh, you know, the hundreds of millions of people in this country and not uh, the 400 richest Americans who have more wealth than the bottom 61% of the population, which is pretty crazy. You know, when you, 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 the last answer you stated that we are the government, and, and it got me thinking uh, about uh, former Defense Secretary William Cohen, who said that government is the enemy until you need a friend. <laughs> And, and so I'm wondering, with that, with that said, I'm, I'm, but I, I'm wondering, is, 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 has, has government just become this amorphous term, in your view, that, that we the people can simply fill in the blanks of our own assumptions, and that's what government is? Well, I think, and you started off by talking about this, I think that government has been held up as the enemy by a lot of uh, special interest forces on the right by people that were seeking to push through tax cuts for the wealthiest few, people who were seeking to divide people along racial lines, kept trying to get people to hate government because government was enforcing laws that said segregation is unconstitutional and no longer something that we can even accept just de facto, um, although, of course, we've moved so much um, unfortunately, back closer to that uh, today. So, and then really, if you think about it, 20 people own as much wealth as half of all Americans. Now, you know, Americans are, are, are optimistic people. We, you know, many people are still able to be upwardly mobile. I don't think as a culture we are uh, anti-rich in any way, shape, or form. But that's still I think should be pretty shocking to folks that 20 people own as much wealth as half of all Americans. And at the same time, the minimum wage has stagnated in real value over the last 40 years. And the point is that those are choices that our government makes in terms of setting the rules for the economy. So we can restructure the rules for the economy so that there's better economic opportunities for people of low and middle incomes and more asked from the 20 wealthiest people in the country or even the 40 richest Americans who have more wealth than the bottom, you know, and nearly two-thirds of the population. 
And I think the question is about fairness and it's about, you know, equity. But some people who really don't seem to care about the rest of folks just want to keep all their money and don't want to see themselves as connected to the success or failure of the rest of us. And I think that's the point is that we have got to recognize that we we stand or fall together. We must rely on our pluralism as our strengths and we must understand that that you know the kind this kind of vast inequality is allowing the our our government to be captured by these special interest um, economic forces of the wealthy and therefore not um, not passing laws that are even really supported by vast majorities of people. And that's so I think that I guess circling back to your question, you were asking about, um, you know, is government just kind of something that people are filling in? I think that's true. And I think that there's been um, first of all, there is so much more trust in government at the state and local level. So that is. Um, you know, most not all people think that government is bad. And in fact, in research that the Center for American Progress did, um, this was a few years ago, but, you know, 72 percent of people, even at the federal level, um, felt that with the right leadership, uh, the federal government could be a force for good. So people are looking to government, uh, you know, to, ha to, to help and should be looking to government to have better policies around crippling student debt. You know, to invest more money in higher education for all and in paid family leave and in, you know, access to um, services that enable workforce participation uh, by women and men and, you know, have children, um, you know, supported in, in, in quality, uh, quality child care and education settings. I mean, there's just there, – the point is that we live in society together – and in our free democratic society, we elect the people who themselves make choices and who appoint people who make choices about that really do shape the outlines of the policies that determine what happens out there. What, you know, when you apply for a student loan, how much is your interest going to be? Well, maybe Congress has capped that interest, or maybe they haven't, or maybe if you're, you know, defrauded by a student loan borrower, you're able to seek recompense, or maybe Congress has ended that program. Or right now, for example, Congress has failed to reauthorize the health insurance program, the child's health insurance program that provides access to health care for 9 million children across this country. That is a failure of leadership. And so that's the kind of thing that when we think about government, we should be thinking about all the crucial ways in which we support ourselves, that we ourselves are supported, and that we support each other through Meals on Wheels, through, you know, through free lunch program for hungry children. Um, and yet when you have people who revile the government and the very idea of the public and the very idea of public service, and then appoint these kind of, you know, fellow billionaires um, and economic elites um, and, uh, you know, or in this case, just clearly someone unfit for the job. People who have sought to undermine the very agencies they are now 
heading, that spells trouble for people's lives who won't be able, you know, to to be supported in the way they should be. Um, so that's why we need to fight for these anti-corruption political reform solutions. Um, and I think that, you know, people do really care about these issues, and they just need to uh, understand it through conversations like the ones we're having today. Well, on that note, Liz, um, uh, as you were giving that last answer very eloquently, I might add, you just gave me a, th- a- a thought for a future show that I'm going to have you back on, which is what's underneath when you revile the government. Really, what's un- what's underneath that anger? We'll have to. That's another longer full episode of Public Around. We'll have to have you back to discuss. Les Kennedy, Center for American Progress. Thank you so much for joining us once again on the Public Rally. Much enjoyed it. Much appreciated. Uh, absolutely, my pleasure. Have a wonderful afternoon. That was Liz Kennedy from the Center for American Progress. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. But before that, here is an excerpt from a speech by the author of Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling, on the importance of failing. A mere seven years after my graduation day, I had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain, without being homeless. The fears that my parents had had for me and that I had had for myself had both come to pass. And by every usual standard, I was the biggest failure I knew. Now I'm not going to stand here and tell you that failure is fun. That period of my life was a dark one. And I had no idea that there was going to be what the press has since represented as a kind of fairy tale resolution. I had no idea then how far the tunnel extended, and for a long time, any light at the end of it was a hope rather than a reality. So why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was, and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one arena where I believed I truly belonged. I was set free because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive and I still had a daughter whom I adored and I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. You might never fail on the scale I did, but some failure in life is inevitable. It is impossible to live without failing at something, unless you live so cautiously that you might as well not have lived at all, in which case you fail by default. for my closing remarks. When you're the most diverse nation in the world, formed on the basis of an idea, imperfection and paradox will invariably kick in. 
The natural impulse is to assume there is a single narrative that describes the American experiment. But that, unfortunately, is simply not the case. As the demographics of America change, it is reasonable to imagine narratives that run counter to the perceived status quo would also emerge. The latest example would be the saga of professional athletes kneeling during the playing of the national anthem. Ironically, the Star-Spangled Banner possesses controversial lyrics that now serve as an unattended justification for the protests. It's inadvertent because when the protests began, few were discussing the lyrics to the Star-Spangled Banner. Admittedly, there's nothing controversial in the first stanza of the Star-Spangled Banner, which most are familiar, but the third stanza, which most have never sung, let alone aware of, celebrates the death of slaves who, in exchange for their freedom, sided with the British in the War of 1812. Should we conclude the more than 6,000 slaves who fought against America in exchange for liberty were unpatriotic? The Constitution had already legitimized their status as outliers when it came to the promises of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To some, the Star-Spangled Banner's lyrics about slavery, which have made its way across the social media landscape, appear as an opportune validation for those protesting. But is it unrealistic, given America's complicated racial history, that many might not feel included when the national anthem is played, regardless of the lyrics? Americans do indeed have a shared history, but not an identical perspective. Should Americans, regardless of race, stand for a song that touts the death of slaves? If not, how does America negotiate such differences while maintaining a commitment to E. Pluribus Unum? Out of many, one. That is the nation's motto. Unfortunately, America is better constructed to pose difficult questions than it is to provide easy answers. This is an ongoing struggle for a nation committed to liberty and equality, dedicated to pluralism, while historically possessing inconsistent results. But in the public discourse, e pluribus unum is not the goal. It has been conveniently translated from out of many one to out of many ways of viewing the issue, there's just one, my way. Taking a stand on players kneeling during the national anthem is profoundly American in its ability to remain largely on the inconsequential surface. But just below that boisterous terrain lie questions related back to E. Pluribus Union. While many may publicly reject those who do not stand for the national anthem before a sporting event or the failure to place one's hand over his or her heart when saying the Pledge of Allegiance, they are only violations of a homogenized ceremonial acts. I have long been dubious of the emphasis placed on overt acts of patriotism. I'm not necessarily opposed to such customary behavior, but to view those who choose not to participate shouldn't be considered an affront to the country. Overt rituals, because they require little of us, can blind us to authentic forms of patriotism. Though I'm unaware of any flag lapel he may have adorned during his lifetime, is there any greater example of patriotism in the last half of the 20th century than Martin Luther King Jr.? Time has made it easy to forget 
that the civil rights movement, which King led, based its rationale on the ideals of the Declaration of Independence and the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, for which they too pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. We spend more time defending the narrative of our choosing rather than hearing the opposing thought. Our multiple narratives become monologues of certainty fraught with recriminations that conspire to keep us stagnant. What our symbols of patriotism represent depend largely on where one stands. Some see only the valor of the greatest generation. Others see only the hostility that greeted returning black World War II soldiers who secured freedom abroad that were paradoxically denied at home. Both perspective as well as others are required if the story is to be complete. The American narrative demands that our varying perspectives are held in a delicate balancing act. The American narrative demands that our varying perspectives are held in a delicate balancing act. What makes the nation dynamic are not inadequate attempts of homogenization, but our diversity. E pluribus unum is not a model of comfort, but rather a commitment to discomfort. Though counterintuitive on the surface, it is those who see the world differently who hold the key to our enlightenment. That is the path toward a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow me on Twitter as well as Facebook. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh-huh.